Welcome, everyone. It's 11 o'clock, so please take a seat. Welcome to our Thursday 11th hour. Um, again, as always, if you have a cell phone, if you could please uh, turn it off or silence it. And if you have questions at the end of the presentation, I'll carry around the mic as quickly as possible. A few weeks ago, David McCullough gave a commencement address in Pittsburgh at the very high school I attended. He said, we are all, each and every one of us, more lastingly influenced by the setting where we grew up than we know or sufficiently appreciate. The deep impress of place, hills of home, home ground, the look and lay of the land, old home ways, home values, home horizons. He went on, how often in my work I have come to a better understanding of the men and women of our American past by spending time where they grew up. With these words in mind, I'm pleased to introduce Eric Goodman, who will talk to us today about place. Eric is a graduate of both Yale and Stanford University, where he received an MA in creative writing. He is a professor of English and former director of the creative writing program at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. He has published five novels, Twelfth and Race, Child of My Right Hand, In the Days of Awe, The First Time I Saw Jenny Hall, and High on the Energy Bridge. He is the recipient of three Ohio Arts Council fellowships, as well as residencies at the Headland Center for the Arts, Ragdale, and the McDowell Colony. He has also published more than 150 articles and essays, with work appearing in the LA Times, Sunday Magazine, GQ, Travel and Leisure, Savor, and several anthologies. Please join me in welcoming Eric Goodman. Thank you for the introduction, and everybody can hear this. Okay. Uh, before I um, proceed with my scheduled remarks about uh, place and the power of place, um, I'd like to point out the sort of place that uh, you find yourself in now. I got here uh, a little bit, bit dry-throated from the walk up the hill and also from having to face all of you and kind of rushed around and thought, oh, my God, I needed a, a little bottle of water. We didn't know where to find a bottle of water, even if you could find a bottle of water here in this building. So I stopped into the office across the way and said, you know, is there a vending machine with water here? And woman working there said, yes, but how many do you need? I said, just one, and she went in and got me one. So that is <coughs> Iowa City. Um, so the power of place. Uh, I'd also like to point out today is my son's birthday. Uh, happy birthday, Ethan, where you are, uh, not here. Um, the power of place. Uh, we describe certain places as our spiritual or psychic home, a place in which you are very much at home without knowing why, perhaps. Uh, if you lose that home, you are doomed to wander like the Jews with Moses in the desert. Why did they have to wander for 40 years? To allow the older generation to die out so that they would no longer have a slave mentality when they got to the promised land, but also so they would no longer miss home, uh, whatever that is. There are many ways to talk about the relationship between a character and setting. We can talk about a character in harmony with her setting. We can talk about a character in conflict with or unfamiliar with her setting, fish out of water, as it's often referred to in uh, writing manuals, an exile, an exile doomed never to sleep, 
comfortably in his or her psychic bed again. No less a poet than John Denver sang, country road, take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia, mountain mama, take me home, country roads. And we all know what he meant by that. In Rocky Mountain High, that same poet sang in his singer-songwriter persona, coming home to a place he'd never been before, and we knew what he meant by that as well, a place which you feel at peace, uh, home, as somebody has written, is where you never have to ask if you can come. Other earlier writers, perhaps less gifted than John Denver, have had their own views about the relationship between humans, uh, which they thought of as man, and nurturing nature. William Wordsworth, the soul of the Romantics, who, by the way, was born in Cockermouth, Cumberland, in merry old England, wrote in lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey, knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her. Most of a century later, the naturalists and American literary movement most associated with Jack London and Stephen Crane Crane, hypothesized a very different relationship between humans and their environment in which nature was completely indifferent to the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of the ant-like creatures everywhere and at all times. In the open boat, Crane imagines the thoughts of the four men in a dinghy trying to get ashore. If I am going to be drowned, if I am going to be drowned, if I am going to be drowned, why in the name of the seven mad gods who ruled the sea was I allowed to come thus far and contemplate sand and trees? Was I brought here merely to have my nose dragged away as I was about to nibble the sacred cheese of life? And for Crane, the answer is yes. Nature, uh, the embodiment of the environment, simply doesn't care or notice us. In our own day, faced with the devastating effects of our actions on the environment, most sane people, a group from which I exclude anyone receiving funding from the Koch brothers, tend to believe there is a symbiotic relationship between humans and the environment, and that if there has been indifferent to the fate of one half of that relationship, it is humans who have been indifferent to what happens to the planet. I might add that if you believe that and would like to do something about it, never vote for a Republican in a national election. Alternatively put, in thinking about the relationship between individuals and the environment, one might say, I am with her. Politics aside, which I am not allowed to speak about in my day job, but I'm only here for a week in the summer, I would say that it is only with very great hazard to the quality of and the impact of her writing that a character can avoid thinking about setting. 
the world in which a character is imagined to exist. The setting, after all, is the atmosphere your characters and your readers breathe. The skill with which you create and evoke a fictional or so-called real place plays a very large part in determining the success of your writing project. Why? Place Matters, which by the way is the title of one of my wife's books, place has meaning. Place not only evokes in a fictional world as in our own world, place means. Um, and I began thinking about this, and uh, to illustrate it, I'm going to give you an example from my own writing. My, my last novel, Twelfth uh, in Race, um, is about a um, fictional couple, uh, fictional mixed-race couple, white man, black woman, set against the backdrop of racial troubles um, in a Midwestern city. It was inspired by the events in Cincinnati, where I was then living, um, where Timothy Thomas, a young black man, um, the end of a cycle of, of black men, and was killed by a police officer. And this is in April of 2001. The city sort of erupted. Uh, National Guard was called in. Um, and my novel is set against uh, the backdrop of that an American novelist and trying to think about big issues. Most of the novels that I've written have been, uh, you know, set against the backdrop of some issue that I've been thinking about. It's hard not to think about race. Um, and so I finished the, the book, and I spent a great deal of time um, creating Cincinnati, uh, which uh, has been, you know, for two centuries now, almost in a way at the it's a liminal space in terms of race. You, you know, you had to swim across the Ohio River to go from uh, slave state to free state. Um, and so I spent a great deal of time, other than the fictional story of, of Richie and Letitia uh, that I was telling, uh, creating Cincinnati. Um, I have a, a uh, background as a journalist, and I've often done research for my novels by, as Mr. McCullough talked about, going to the place where my characters lived um, as a way to make it real. So um, <clears throat> uh, my agent began sending the book around, um, and uh, the first uh, publisher that really sparked to it and saw in it what I was trying to write about, that um, we are all of us uh, racist, particularly in our private thoughts, or most of us are, or certainly everybody I know is, uh, was uh, University of uh, Nebraska, which publishes what they refer to as the flyover fiction series. And so... Um, I, and, you know, and they wrote me a glowing letter. We'd love to publish your book, really love it, like what you have to say. Um, I thought, great, and I knew there was a but coming, as there often is. But um, uh, 
we only um, publish books that are set in um, in the flyover states, you know, in our region. And um, I thought, well, that's fine, being from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> and they said, and Ohio is not one of them. <laughs> so while we'd love to publish your book, uh, would you mind moving the setting from Ohio to one of the states, and they sent me a map that's in our region. <laughs> so I thought many things I did not say around my young children, like, are you crazy? But that's not what I thought. Are you out of your mind? And that's not exactly what I thought either. And um, they said, no, we're not, um, you know, we really write, you know, all of the novels that we published, you know, are set basically on the plains. You know, they have to be just west of the Mississippi and east of the Rockies. And, you know, finding a good publisher isn't that easy. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'll think about this. And then I had to begin thinking about the meaning of place and the meaning of place, particularly as it was constituted and what Cincinnati meant. Um, there, where there had been as early, you know, there was a free uh, black population in Cincinnati going back, you know, to the beginning of the Republic. And there was a significant ab abolitionist movement in Cincinnati, and there were, uh, in a portion of the novel I had to cut out of the book, there had been significant race riots in Cincinnati in the 1830s, um, uh, the first time in which um, a, a free black community uh, being attacked by uh, the equally free um, white community fired back and fended themselves, um, a, a moment quite lost in history. Um, but basically, I thought, so as I looked around the cities, uh, you know, in uh, the region, there are only two that, that fit what, you know, they needed to be at a, at a place where at the border of, of free and slave, uh, and needed to have significant white and black population. And really, the only ones that fit that, those of you who are from this region, in terms of white and black significant population, are Omaha and Kansas City. Uh, and the only one that's really uh, at that kind of liminal space is Kansas City, you know, where it's, it's Kansas and Missouri, you know, uh, met there. And... Um, because my good friend Ron Hansen has Nebraska sewed up, and because I um, uh, actually know Kansas City some for a range of reasons, um, that's what I chose, where I chose to place uh, my novel. Um, and <clears throat> because um, I am from the East, uh, and I my protagonist, uh, Richie, who's got issues of identity that are being worked out in terms of the plot, um, uh, is working uh, for a um, company much like Procter & Gamble, which is whom he worked for in the first draft of the novel, and he's, he's, um, has moved there. And um, he is a, a deeply lonely person, and as the section I'm going to read to you um, uh, 
opens, he is, um, friends of his, his best friends in this town, have just told them that they're pregnant, and would he be um, the, you know, the, the godfather to uh, this child? And he, and he has also j just started going out with Letitia, who um, is a few years younger than he is, African-American, and has, has a mixed-race child of her own. That's probably much all you need. And so it turned out, as I began thinking about writing this, that despite, you know, I mean, like months and years of, you know, reading everything that exactly had happened during those fateful months in Cincinnati um, and making the, 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 that city um, a important player in the novel, I had moved it not to Kansas City, but because I, di I didn't know Kansas City that well, but what I called Calhoun City, um, named after um, John Calhoun, the, the famous defender of slavery as a positive good. Okay, so Richie is now walking home from his, um, his dinner with his friends. When he reached home, Richie decided to call his sister. Since moving to Florida five years ago to sell real estate to the soon-to-be-retired, she'd been busy, 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 busy. If he didn't call her, they didn't speak. His whole life, she'd been more like a young aunt than a sister. She ought to pick up the damn phone now and then. It wasn't like she had anyone else in her life, which was something else he didn't understand. Even in her mid-40s, Pammy was sexy. At least he'd thought so the last time he saw her almost a year ago. Pale blue eyes like their dad, sandy hair, white blonde and baby pictures, and a very grown-up body, large breasts, wide hips, the same short legs Richie had inherited. Why Pam hadn't found someone and why she never had kids, well, those were mysteries. Her machine picked up. Richie left a short message, doused the lights, and gazed out through his living room picture window high in the Western Auto Building. Any of you who know Kansas City might know the Western Auto, Auto Building. Western Auto, once proud corporate headquarters until converted to condos a few years ago, was shaped like a pie wedge turned sideways. It straddled downtown train tracks in Sea City, Missouri. His living room window faced west, overlooking the train yards which had provided Sea City with its first source of wealth and reason for being. Location, 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 Eddie's, as he'd heard his sister say about her business. In Sea City's case, the eastern terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad. He'd bought the condo a little over a year ago when he was promoted from assistant brand manager, ABM, to brand manager, BM, and assigned a new business development, assigned to new business development, NBD. Pammy had sent flowers and a card congratulating him from being elevated from anti-ballistic missile to bowel movement. <laughs> he was pulling down 122 grand a year because BMs were band three. He could count on a sizable year-end bonus. All this, and Richie still had his hair, which, was, which his mother's father had lost in his 20s. Since the fall of eighth grade, when he mastered the basics of Mendelian genetics, Richie had assumed a similar fate awaited him, Domehead. For years, he'd fretted and did still, despite the mirror's thick assurances. Any moment, it could all vanish, like his father and later his mother had. Luxuriant was how his biz school lover, Liz, had described Richie's hair. 
and follicular health had turned out to be more than the sum of vanity or fear. Ritchie's brand, Falgrow, known in-house as Project Turf, was CNM's entry in the hot hair regrowth market, and a thick head of hair, well, he could sell the bejesus out of it because Ritchie knew how wretched it felt to fear losing it. His condo, gleaming oak floors, 1920s, 12-foot ceilings, but a space-age kitchen, two large bedrooms, more space than he'd ever imagined having for himself, was one floor below the enormous illuminated red Western auto sign on the roof. He'd chosen to live downtown rather than in the trendy plaza area or in the Kansas suburbs where his married with kids' colleagues lived, not only because it was close to work and work was mostly what he did, but also because it overlooked the train yards. Growing up, trains had meant graffiti-covered subway cars, which he'd ridden from Brooklyn to Manhattan. Here it meant the freights in their mournful middle-of-the-night whistles, somehow the loneliest yet most comforting of sounds, and Ritchie at his core was the loneliest of men. Although he disdained the sappy comfort of country western music, he'd come to love the sound of freight whistles of the sustained sigh and rill, the fading in the night sadness, and he listened for the sound in his sleep alone in his empty bed. He felt all stirred up inside, no doubt Dave and Laura's news about being pregnant. He was happy for them, and what else? Bone-deep lonely. Without giving himself time to think, he dialed Letitia, hoping 5 to 11 wasn't too late to call. Hey, Richard, barely a whisper, how you been? He'd called Monday, the day after what he thought of as their first date, then everything got crazy at work. I didn't wake you, he asked. Nah, she yawned, I'm lying in bed. I did wake you. I'm glad you called, she said. I'm glad you're glad. He let himself fantasize about her bed and what she might or might not be wearing. On Sunday, she'd asked to be dropped at the intersection of 68th and Ruskin, near, she said, but not in front of her apartment. I was wondering if you'd like to see me again, he said, or maybe you're too busy at school. I think you know, she said. No, he knew nothing. A real date. In the dark. Did he just say, in the dark? What kind of date, she asked? After dark. I meant to say, after dark. I bet, she said. Flustered and therefore talking faster and faster and faster and faster, Richie continued, the kind where I pick you up and take you out to dinner, I ate tonight with my friend Dave, the one I told you about. Call waiting, damn, bleeped in the background. That's why I called so late, this really nice place near the plaza, then maybe a movie. Bleep. I'd like that, she said. I'm sorry, he said. I have a call coming in. He pressed flash. Pammy said, Richie, how are you? On the other line, who are you talking to this late? I'll call you back. So who was that, Tisha asked. My sister. Richard, you a player? What? Sister or sister? He took a moment to understand. My big sister Pam in Florida, he looked down at the sleeping city. Not a soul moved, nor the lights of a single car. How about Saturday, he said. So it turned out, as I began to you know, revise the novel, um, ultimately I was glad that I was writing it in my own city because um, I could shape that reality um, to shape meaning more clearly. Um, 
it was a place um, in which uh, the issues raised by a city that's been on at the edge of race relations the entire time was what that city meant. And Ritchie, whom I situate uh, at the train yard that connects east and west, he's an Easterner, you know, who's moved to the middle of the country. Um, I could place him in a way uh, that made the most sense for me, and I thought most worked for the novel. Um, I'd like to turn now to how you do it, to how do you make place matter, how do you evoke place in your writing, um, basically the nuts and bolts of perhaps how to go about it, and if you have you know, something to take a note or two on, this one might be the place to do that. So um, <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, you one line and then a, a page or two from um, uh, Haruki Murakami, a writer I admire a great deal, a Japanese writer whose masterpiece that I've been reading and reading and reading now for a couple of months, uh, you know, 1Q84, uh, 1160 pages, the longest book I've ever read. I'm, I am over a thousand now. Um, and it's a book that's a certain amount about writing. And at one point in it, he says, when you introduce things that most writers have never seen before into a piece of fiction, you have to describe them with as much precise detail as possible. I'll repeat that. When you introduce things that most writers have never seen before into a piece of fiction, you have to describe them with as much precise detail as possible. I would argue that any world you are creating on the page is a world that your readers have never seen before because it's a world that you're creating. Even if your process is mimetic, trying to create the world exactly as it is, it's your world. So how do you go about it? In general, I would say fully imagine. See the world in great detail and describe it fully at first, and then focus on representative details to repeat and to return to, to evoke that world. Um, however, in the section I'm going to read to you um, from IQ84, that's not exactly what he does, since he, there are no sensory details, particularly other than sight, in this section. Um, the protagonist's name is Tengo. Uh, he's had this deep spiritual connection with a girl he hasn't seen since he was 10 years old. And in thinking back uh, to the moment in which they last, they had this, this memorable moment in which she grabbed his hand and held it tightly when they were 10 years old. Um, and he's remembered this ever since, and so has she. Um, he realizes it was late afternoon, and the, it was a time of the month in which the moon was up, and um, they were both perhaps looking up at it. And so now he, as he, <clears throat> he's, um, it's nearly 8 o'clock at night, and he's going out looking in Tokyo for a place where he might be able to see the moon. And he re remembers that there's a playground nearby. There was no one in the playground. A tall, makery vapor lamp stood in the middle, illuminating every corner of the place. 
There was a large Zelkova tree, its leaves still thick and luxuriant. There were several low shrubs, a water fountain, a bench, swings, and a slide. There was also a public toilet, but it had been locked by a worker at sunset, perhaps to keep vagrants out. During the daytime, young mothers brought their children who were not yet old enough for kindergarten and kept up their lively chattering while the children played. Tengoat had observed such scenes any number of times. Once the sun went down, however, almost no one visited the place. Tengo climbed the slide and, still standing, looked up at the night sky. A new six-story condo stood on the north side of the park. He had never noticed it before. It must have been built quite recently. It blocked the northern sky like a wall. Only low buildings stood on the other three sides of the playground. Tengo turned to scan the area and found the moon in the southwest hanging over an old two-story house. It was about three-quarters full, just like the moon of 20 years ago, Tengo thought, exactly the same size and shape, a complete coincidence, probably, again using something real to evoke. But this bright moon, hanging in the early autumn night sky, had sharp, clear outlines in the introspective warmth characteristic of this season. The impression it gave was very different from that of the moon at 3.30 in the December afternoon sky. Its calm, natural glow had the power to soothe and heal the heart like the flow of clear water or the gentle stirring of tree leaves. Standing on the very top of the slide, Tengo looked up at that moon for a very long time. From the direction of Ring Road 7 came the blended sound of different sized tires like the roar of the sea. All at once the sound reminded Tengo of the sanatorium where his father was staying on the Chiba shore. The city's earthly lights blotted out the stars as always. The sky was nice and clear, but only a few stars were visible, the very bright ones that twinkled as pale points here and there. Still, the moon stood out clearly against the sky. It hung up there faithfully without a word of complaint concerning the city lights or the noise or the air pollution. If he focused hard on the moon, he could make out the strange shadows formed by its gigantic craters and valleys. Tengo's mind emptied as he stared at the light of the moon. Inside him, memories that had been handed down from antiquity began to stir. Before human beings possessed fire or tools or language, the moon had been their ally. It would calm people's fears now and then by illuminating the dark world like a heavenly lantern. Its waxing and waning gave people an understanding of the concept of time. Even now, when darkness had been banished from most parts of the world, there remained a sense of human gratitude toward the moon and its unconditional compassion. It was imprinted upon human genes like a warm collective memory. Come to think of it, I haven't looked hard at the moon like this for a very long time, Tengo thought. When could, be, when could the last time have been? Living one hectic day after another in the city, you tend to look down at the ground. You forget to look up at the night sky. It was then that Tengo realized there was another moon hanging in the sky. At first, he thought it might be an optical illusion, a mere trick of light rays. But the more he looked at it, the surer he became that there was a second moon with solid outlines up there. 
His mind went blank as he stared in its direction, open-mouthed. What am I seeing? He could not make up his mind. The outline and the substance refused to overlap as when word and concept failed to cohere. Another moon? He closed his eyes, opened his palms, and rubbed his cheeks. What's wrong with me? I didn't drink that much. He drew in a long, quiet breath and then quietly expelled it. He checked to be sure his mind was clear. Who am I? Where am I now? What am I doing? He asked himself in the darkness behind his closed eyelids. It's September 1984. I'm Tengo Kowana. I'm in a playground in Konji and Sujanami Ward, and I'm looking up at the moon and the night sky, no doubt about it. Then he slowly opened his eyes and looked at the sky again, carefully, his mind calm, but still there were two moons. This is no illusion. There are two moons. Tengo balled his hand into a fist and kept it that way for a long time. The moon was as taciturn as ever, but it was no longer alone. And then one chapter later, because he's alternating between him, Tengo's chapters alternate with uh, Awamame's, the young woman in question, now also 30. We come back to Tengo. No doubt about it, there were two moons. And here's the very particular description that I want you to bear in mind, because it makes so real what is fantastical. One moon was the moon that always had been there, and the other was a far smaller greenish moon, somewhat lopsided in shape and much less bright. It looked like a poor, ugly, distantly related child that had been fostered on the family by unfortunate events and was welcomed by no one. But it was undeniably there, neither a phantom nor an optical illusion, hanging in space like any other heavenly bodies, a solid mass with a clear-cut outline, not a plane, not a blimp, not an artificial satellite, not a papier-mâché moon that someone made for fun. It was, without a doubt, a chunk of rock, having quietly, stubbornly settled on a position in the night sky like a punctuation mark placed only after long deliberation or a mold bestowed by destiny. Tengo stared at the new moon for a long time as if to challenge it, never averting his gaze, hardly even think blinking, but no matter how long he kept his eyes locked on it, it refused to budge. It stayed hunkered down at its spot in the sky with silent, stone-hearted tenacity. So I would say, um, thinking about Murakami, now there's obviously uh, this second moon means a, a good deal about this world he's created. Partially it means the world has changed. It's no longer 1984, but uh, 1Q84. That seeing the world, you know, very particularly describing it, fully imagining your world, uh, is your job as a writer. Um, <clears throat> you know, from a very practical standpoint, set yourself the goal of evoking your fa fictional world using a minimum of three sensory materials, I, um, three sensory, three senses. Um, what does your world look like? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like, perhaps? Creating that world, um, and once it's you know, dense on the page, allows you then to 
evoke memories in your characters. Uh, in this case, you know, this second moon, he is now able to see it in a way because he has remembered seeing it the first time with her. But, you know, place evokes memories of previously being there. Um, it helps you to create fully realized characters because little serves as well as giving your characters memories. Um, nouns and verbs do not remember their first kiss, the first time they made love or lost love or sitting under that apple tree with anybody else but me, but characters do. So if you can use place to evoke a very particular memory of something that happened there, your character feels infinitely uh, more dense and three-dimensional, I believe. Finally, and this is where I think inspiration, practice, and keeping your bottom in your writing chair can rise to the level of art, although my most successful former student uh, likes to remind me that sitting is the new smoking. So it's important to keep your bottom out of your writing chair, but on that one, I'm old-fashioned, so I think it's important to keep your bottom in your writing chair, at least figuratively. When your work is really working and you're evoking a place you know and love and feel, and that can be any place, but finding a place that is meaningful and has meaning for your characters, that is in fact the right place for them, that's when uh, the work we do is really worthwhile and uh, can leap into, the, for me, the status of true art. Um, think about Faulkner and Yoknipatawtha County. Um, it's really impossible to think about his work, I think, without thinking of the place that he created for his characters to uh, strive against. There's a reason why so many popular novels are set against the backdrop of you know, the Holocaust, that that is a mine that can be endlessly, a field that can be endlessly plowed, you know, a, you know, a place that can be endlessly mined, because it immediately gives historical substance to your fictional characters. Think about the bottom, uh, the world that Toni Morrison creates in Sula. Um, and then finally, think about your own worlds and your character's world. And think about the world you're ho we're hoping to leave for our children and let those worlds mean and continue to have meaning. And of course, like John Denver, let them sing. Thank you. I'm willing to answer a few. Yes. Ah, that her job. She's bringing you the mic. You seem to be evoking place as its own character. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to the sort of severity of your revision when uh, your potential publisher asks you to move um, the the story from one city to another. It seems pretty severe. So I'm just wondering if that. Yes. It. It. it um, <clears throat> So given my practice, you know, I said, okay, I'll do it, but increase the advance a little bit so I can go spend time in Kansas City. 
because I need to, you know, uh, kind of look at it and breathe the air there. And I ended up um, creating a, my own place, Calhoun City, that was kind of a fusion of Cincinnati um, and Kansas City. You know, the plaza is in, is in Kansas City. Um, in the historical event that I was taking advantage of, and I, and I did to honor him, you know, the, the young man who was shot in Cincinnati, Timothy Thomas, the young man who shot in Calhoun City is also Timothy Thomas. I mean, that sort of stayed the same. Um, the novel is called Twelfth and Race. Uh, that's, I thought it had a metaphorical ring, you know, twelfth, the en end of the day in race, what I'm writing about. Um, in the actual event, he was shot near the intersection of twelfth and race in Cincinnati. In my novel, he was shot at twelfth and race, so that there's a certain way I could kind of amp up what, what, I, what I did. Um, but because it was no longer at a river that divided north from south, but uh, a world in, that divided east from west, and that was where the border a good deal you know, physically had to change. But I think it allowed me to kind of heighten the meaning of the place, you know, because I was now, I, I decided that what I'd been thinking about before, you know, was to get everything factually correct. You know, it's like people who write, you know, memoir and want to change something so that it can be truer than true. Um, I, had, I could do that. But it was, it was a good deal of work, although not, you know, at the end, I have to admit, I was kind of glad, although, you know, I, I spent a couple of days, you know, just stomping around and muttering and, and thinking, you know, calling down the wrath of the place gods on, on the editorial offices of uh, University of Nebraska Press. But finally, I made it my own in a way, for my own purposes. I want to thank you for a brilliant talk. I've lived in Kansas City and Cincinnati. Oh. And so when you talk about... Well, then about you should buy this book. If, only if you autograph it. I, absolutely. I plan to. But all kidding aside, when you talk about place, uh, there's a geographical place in the writer's mind, mm -hmm. and there, of course there is an imaginary place. Now, they might be congruent with one another. They might be actually very distant. Mm -hmm. As a writer, when you look at place as setting, place as the milieu, and you have this geography, and then you have this other element in it. When's the best time, in your judgment, to either have them separate or perhaps kiss one another at a, and intersect one another at the point of the story where it makes the most difference? The most difference between the actual and the imaginary place? Yes, in, in relation to, let's say, either the story itself or a character moving from one mm -hmm. realm to another to explore whatever you, the writer, have decided to make them explore. Well... I, <clears throat> my general uh, you know, plan of, of attack both for character and for place is to try to um, uh, describe them pretty fully uh, pretty early on uh, so that uh, and then um, hold a, you know, one or two characteristics of that place that sort of stands in, you know, the, 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 the part for the whole. But by which I mean, and, and now I'm going to do something that I've been wanting to do for a, for a long time. I've done it in small classrooms. 
I would like you all to close your eyes. Um, put your wallet out on the, on the, no, I'm kidding about the wallet part. Um, I don't know how it's going to, going to have my associate here walk around and collect them, but close your eyes and imagine the, the face of someone, see the face of someone you know quite well. You know, it could be a lover, it could be a de somebody who's departed. And my general notion is that it's, it's kind of in fuzzy outline. But maybe one thing, maybe their nose, or, you know, like Cyrano's nose, or maybe their eyes, or, you know, a dimple on a cheek stands out in sharp relief. Uh, you can open your eyes now. And so my, my, my thought in, in my first novel, you know, I had a character, Humphrey Stern, who um, smiled out of one side of his mouth. So he had kind of a crooked smile. So I had, I'm terrible visually, but I had drew a picture of Humphrey, which I kept above my writing desk. You know, just a, a pen and ink thing, you know, with the, the characters kind of smiling out of one side of his mouth. And so I had described his face, you know, pretty much fully um, early on. And then I would just come back to, you know, to that one feature as a way of evoking the whole. You know, once you have created the image of the character in, in your reader's mind, you can do it by shorthand because you don't, you know, you know the, the, the rosy-fingered dawn notion, you know, in, a, in, a, uh, in the Odyssey. I think it's the same thing for place. You know, if, if you've kind of created the place pretty fully, and I think you want to create place fairly fully at some point so that your reader can see the world you've made, then you, if, by coming back to one aspect of it, you know, perhaps the sound of the trains, if you live above the train yard and you're trying to write, write about a place that's on the border of two things, or you know, a place, you know, a, a, you know, one say, says deserted beach, you know, that evokes something, you know, but you know, the crashing of the waves might mean something. So I think that, you know, so my answer is, is pretty early on, I want to do that and then make meaning from it subsequently. I think it's probably time for lunch. Sure. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you.